Greetings and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna R. Gore, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And uh, yes, indeed, it's our goal to make a difference uh, today and every Saturday that we are broadcasting. So I welcome you to another very chilly um, Saturday here in Connecticut, as well as uh, New Hampshire, where our esteemed um, guest is from. And it's... uh, it's also pretty chilly down there in Myrtle Beach. So, you know, uh, cold is a relative term, I guess you could say. But we are all surviving, and we're here, and we're here for the benefit of others. Um, doing this radio show will take my mind off the bitter cold today. So um, thank God for that. Thank God for our esteemed guest and for um, the good work that Delilah Jones does with Imagine Publicity. I couldn't do it without her. So. Anyway, um, before we get into the meat of the matter, just want to say good morning, Delilah. Um, uh, I'm glad to have you here, and I'm glad to welcome our our brand new guest. And thank you, Charles Moncrief. Moncrief, yes, for introducing us to to our guest this morning, Delilah. um, I just wanted to say, um, you know, it continually amazes me that we're able to feature guests of such um, high caliber. You know, many people have gone through the depths of despair, have experienced human degradation, have experienced extreme loss, and yet they're able able to overcome and to not only survive but thrive. Isn't that amazing to you as well? Oh, it's always amazing. And, you know, it's it's one of those questions I always think about is how do some people come through it stronger in the end and others, you know, just just don't. They, you know, there's probably still a lot of people out there who ball up in the fetal position and just cannot function in life anymore. And I think this is one of the reasons we may be seeing such an, an uptick in, in drug addiction and alcoholism and things like that, that people just are having a hard time dealing. So it's always very refreshing to have someone come on and tell their story so that others have hope because sometimes that's the only hope they have to hang on to. Absolutely. So, you know, um, we, we definitely try to have this show as a forum for that. We're, we're, we're not here to talk about the perps or to, to necessarily to solve a crime. Um, this, this, is a, this is a story about, you know, of a woman who I just put up, I think, a life resurrected, and it, and it might, you know, that, that might fit the description. So without further ado, and we're going to start with a positive and an, up, uh, an update on what she's doing currently and maybe work our way backward. Dawn Pollock, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for being part of our Shattered Wives radio family. Pleasure to have thank, you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, we we appreciate you being with us because it's an opportunity to build awareness and to educate, and that that's what we are about. Um, to begin with, like I said, let's start with what you're currently doing, maybe, and work backwards because people may not be as familiar. And um, I just wanted to, uh, um, you know, maybe read the description that you sent me, and you can elaborate on that, and then we'll get into other things. Okay, so Darlene Pollock and her husband of more than 27 years lives in uh, southern New Hampshire, um, and you have five grown children, four of whom have owned a variety of small businesses, and your youngest child is currently serving in the U.S. Air Force, and you also have uh, two young grandchildren that you treasure, and Mm -hmm. you are retired 
um, from a 28-year-long career in nursing due to illness, but um, you uh, are back or you are currently working as an author and professional speaker developing curriculum around the issue of human trafficking, and, and you still manage to squeeze in some residential real estate. Um, I, can, I can relate to that part. <laughs> and your passion and your passion is defending human rights um, brought to your attention recently. So maybe we can also get into that. I'm not exactly sure what that refers to, but let's, let's say that you're a person for all seasons and you have many, many interests and passions, which is, which is so great. Um, tell us, tell us what, tell us a little more about, about your passions and what, and what you're doing currently, and then we can kind of work backwards. Okay, cool. I have been, um, doing a, a, a number of speaking engagements for crisis pregnancy centers and, um, maternity homes to raise awareness and funds for them. So doing fundraisers and keynotes and helping them to meet their audience and uh, expose to them the kinds of changes that they make possible. Uh, Without the donors, these homes wouldn't be able to function and transform lives the way that, that they do. And they do it on a very regular basis and they're there day and night and, and uh, helping people to change their lives it was a uh, it was a a woman who opened her home to me that changed my life radically, and uh, I just really I love to give back and to uh, serve that same community because until I was 18 years old I didn't know there were good people in the world who would give out of their own out of their own wallets and uh, stores of energy and out of their own resources for no reward back to them. I didn't know those people existed, and so I really love to lavish on them the the honor that I feel toward them and thank them so much for their giving and and uh, help them to see the magnificent change that they make possible because they're real heroes to me, as are you and Delilah. This this show I've I've listened to a couple and. I'm just so grateful that you're out there broadcasting hope the way that you are. And and as you say, you turn it around so that people can recognize that no matter how deep and dark you are in a hole right now, there is light and you can can come up out of there. And that's awesome. So thank you for all you do. Well, thank you. And it's quite an honor for you to say that, quite a compliment. Um, When you say maternity, is that what you said, maternity homes? I did. Uh, so sometimes they're called shepherding homes. Can you define that homes. for us and, and tell us what 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 that entails, and then maybe we can interface that with how you you got there in the first place. Okay, great. Um, a maternity home, also sometimes called a shepherding home or a home for unwed mothers. Sometimes it's called a shelter, um, but it's usually not a shelter in terms of you know, you're there at night and out during the day. This is a long-term home, and it's usually, when it's, when it's a maternity home, it's usually a place where you can stay until you get on your feet. So a lot of women will come some, at some point during their pregnancy, and then they'll have their child. All the time that they're there, they're being educated. They're learning parenting skills. They're learning budgeting skills and finance. They're learning all, all the life skills that they may or may not have learned, depending on their age and circumstance. And so they're they're educated and brought to a place where they can be more independent. They learn how to cook, for example, as I said, life skills. So all of those kinds of things. And then they are, uh, while they're there, they're learning how to receive assistance, whether that be job training or um, public assistance until they can get the correct job training. They get into school, they get grants or whatever. And so these homes are usually, like I said, long-term, um, anywhere from from 12 to 24 months. Some of them are um, flexible. So you don't have a one-year commitment, for example. You have a, a shorter-term commitment as long as you get until you get on your feet. And what that does is it takes a, a potentially homeless pregnant woman and puts her in a position where she can then really get her feet under her and go forward in life. And I, and that's what happened with me. So in my, in my life, I, I was actually conceived um, during a, a violent rape and my mom 
never thought about abortion. She just said, well, we were in it together. And, of course, she didn't say that to me until I was much older. But that sort of gave me uh, a sense that she recognized me as a person right away. And so we were in it together. And and I always remembered that when I was when I was a little bit older and I was going through all the stuff that I went through, that, that even though that little baby can't be seen, that is a person. And it, it stayed with me even to this day. So I'm part of the personhood alliance right now, um, you know, even, even at 50 years old because of her statement. So it was just such an awesome thing to say. Um, she, she ended up marrying the man that raped her because he told her that he'd ruined her and that no one else would ever want her. And so she believed him. They grew up in a post-Vietnam you know, uh, Vietnam kind of atmosphere, uh, not post-Vietnam, I'm sorry, pre-Vietnam atmosphere where it was um, a, lot of, a lot of hard, like never sharing your feelings, not talking. There weren't parenting skills, that sort of thing. It was, it was kind of a hard youth <laughs> style, if you want, when she was growing up. And so she just believed him. And did she think you, that by marrying him that would legitimize, you know, the baby or that she would get finally get some support or what, why did she think that that was the way to go or because that was the era? Well, he, he said you should marry me because I've ruined you and no one else would ever want you. And so I think that she just uh, believed that, like no one else is going to want me. So, okay, I'll marry him. I think she might, you know, she might have had in the back of her mind that this wouldn't be so violent. But as it turned out, he continued to attack her for the next two years. And when she found out she was pregnant again, she was on the verge of suicide when she finally disclosed to her mom. Um, She told her all that had gone on, that he had been attacking her and that she was going to kill herself if she didn't take her in. So we at that point moved into my grandmother's house, which was a, a a, a tumultuous place because my mom was the oldest of four teenagers. So there was a lot going on all the time. And she had, her mom had just had a baby uh, a year and a half before me. So there were teenagers in the house and toddlers in the house at the same time. So it was pretty chaotic, but um, there was, she, she remarried after a while and she still sent us to our paternal grandmother's house where our biological father had access to us and so he abused us also and from toddlerhood I was sexually abused and it got more deviant as I got older and it got more crazy as I got older and um, I I managed to sort of put it out of my head and live a double life so when I was at my stepfather's house I lived a pretty normal life we had games and toys and we had friends and we had cousins that we all hung around with, and it was pretty normal. Um, it wasn't lovey-dovey, you know, everybody appreciates each other, mutual admiration society, but it was go to school, you come home, you get good grades, you do well, you do chores, etc. But at my paternal grandmother's house on the weekends, it was um, a very hard work and very cold. My grandmother was very cold. And then, he, like I said, my, my biological father had access and um, and that was very awful. He gave us drugs and alcohol to keep us quiet and to numb the pain. And oh. so we were we were you know heavily drugged often. Um, I remember one time. Darlene, was in, what well, was the what was the custody arrangement? I mean, why did you have to go to your exactly? On the weekend? <laughs> what was that's it? what's so that's what's so crazy is my stepfather actually adopted us. So there was no need for us to go there and no legal requirement whatsoever. But it was just that my stepfather already had two two daughters of his own, and so we would sometimes switch off where he would have his girls over to his house, and so we were sent away so that it was, quote, unquote, more peaceful for him. And so we we were sent back um, with, you know, they didn't know that we were being abused there. Uh, One time I was about five, maybe six years old, and my father had, um, my biological father had brought me into the house, and I was filthy from the things that he was doing to me. And my grandmother threw me in the tub, and she sternly said to me, don't say a word. At the same time, yelling at him, what are you bringing her back so late for? Because my, my mom was due any minute. She washed me up, and I was still in my towel in her arms when she whispered again in my ear, 
don't say a word. When my mom came in, she was getting my sister dressed as my grandmother was drying, toweling me off, and I was getting dressed. I got into the car. My mom was asking me how the, was the weekend, et cetera, et cetera. I did not say a word for two days. I didn't talk wow. at all. I went home and didn't say a word. And my how mom old were still, you at this point? I, I was I was five. I might have been closer to six. Um, it was in the fall, though, I think. It was cold. My mom remembers it, but she doesn't remember how old I was. But she said, you know, I remember that, that you didn't talk, and I had no idea why. But it seems to me that, it, as we're talking here, there are people who need to know about these red flags. Like, that was a red flag that she didn't know. She just kind of shrugged it off because I was a quiet kid. My nickname was sit down because I would quietly stand in the corner of a room. My sister was the one that was loud and obnoxious and dropped everything. And so I would sit down and she was shut up. And so she didn't really see that there was that much of a difference because I wasn't talking. But it's a big red flag. Wow. Both the acting out and quietness. Those are the two extremes. And we just happen to have both of them. <laughs> and we were both being abused horrifically. And we we just had the the opposite reactions to it but as time grew on you know went on I was able to stay home and I didn't so I didn't have to go there anymore I stayed home on my own and um that 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 left me feeling worth less than other people you know I found out that I was conceived by rape the kids in the neighborhood knew of this rapist that had been in that area. And so I was always really concerned that somebody was going to find out that there was a connection, but I was always grateful that I was adopted because my name was different. I wasn't connected with my biological father. Okay. But I, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So as I was hanging around as a teenager, this, um, I was, it, it was in my, um, actually prior to that in my, in my early part of my 13th year, my, my mom had a lot of people in and out of the apartment, and one of her brothers molested me. And so that's when my world completely spun out of control. I wasn't able to have that, that safe space anymore, whereas before when she was married, I had the double life. You know, I had the safe space where it was pretty normal, and then I would go to have, you know, be abused. And now it was in the home where I didn't have any escape. So I started... So your mom a- got divorced, and then she started having, I mean... Uh, people come into the home? Yeah. So when she got divorced, we moved over to a tenement in Haverhill, Massachusetts. And um, it was during the Great Recession in 1979, 1980. And uh, so she would have other people come and stay at the house to help pay the rent. So sometimes my grandmother Uh would be there. Sometimes it would be an uncle. I mean, I remember pulling glass out of one of my uncle's feet because he left detox, walked from Lawrence, Massachusetts, and walked to our house. And I, had, and I had been pulling the glass out of his feet, washing his feet, and he stayed with us for a while. He, he got a job. That was a different uncle. But so we had, like, friends and uncles, and, and my, like I said, my grandmother would stay for weeks or months at a time. And there was always drinking and drugs in the house. But when that uncle, when I, that uncle molested me, I went and I started running away. I started uh, vandalizing property. Um, I would walk to school. I left school in the sixth grade. So I would walk to school, have my free breakfast, and then just leave and go smoke and drink with my friends. And um, in that summer when I was out of school, it was actually the spring, a really handsome guy came to my neighborhood in a black Lincoln Continental, red interior. It sparkled. He sparkled. Like everything about him was so gregarious and friendly and fun. He seemed to be paying attention to everyone in the neighborhood, like being real friendly with everyone. I didn't realize Mm -hmm. that I was being targeted. Um, For trafficking, yeah. Yeah. So he, he set his sights on me, carried on conversations with me, found out times that I would be there when maybe the other kids weren't or whatever. And, you know, it's New England, so as soon as the weather got cold, I was in his car to get warm, you know, and it wasn't long before I was in his bed. And then um, he would make innuendo and kind of talk to me a little bit about having the things that I needed because we were very poor. I didn't have boots, for example, in the wintertime and things like that. But I didn't, you know, I didn't go for it right away. It took a long time of what we call grooming of him sort of talking to me and coaxing me into the idea that I could have sex with other people and then get money. And um, I didn't, you know, I didn't go for it. But on my 14th birthday, my mom came home from running some errands and 
I stood at the other end of the kitchen table and I said, it's my birthday. And, of course, now I realize I didn't deserve anything for my birthday. But when you're 14, you don't think consequences. You think now. It's in the moment. And I was 14 and it was my birthday. I just expected something for my birthday. Right. But she she reached into her pocketbook and threw two crumpled up dollar bills on the table and said, here, with a dirty look, and walked into the other room. I was devastated. Oh. I was re- I was just so devastated. So that man had given me his phone number, and he never asked for mine. He was never pushy. So it kind of made me feel like this was my moment of empowerment. I was making my own decision. And I called him. And so I stood out on the street day in three inches of slush coming over my sneakers, and everything was gray. So if you... If you've ever been in, like, I know your your show is nation, nation, nationwide, excuse me, and some people have never stood in a, a pile of slush, but it's all gray, and the streets were gray, and it was overcast, and it was a three-way intersection, and there was a drugstore behind me, but not much in front of me, and I just remember standing there wondering if anyone could see me, if I was even, like, there, visible to anyone else, and... um and it was you very, felt invisible while you were you were waiting for him to pick you up. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. What well, we were supposed it, to meet Darlene, there. did this also happen to your sister as well? I mean, it did not. No, she had a different a different experience. Yeah, she was okay. actually separated from me for a while. She went to live with my grandmother, um, and that that was her saving grace. Was my grandmother um, took her in because she had it much worse with my mom. Um, my mom was also um, abusive. It was more neglect and and um, verbal and mental and physical abuse. It wasn't sexual abuse, but it was it was it was rough. It was rough oh, on goodness. both sides of the aisle. Wow! Um, but she had it worse because she was she was the um, I don't know I don't know exactly why, but she was the second pregnancy, and I think she felt more trapped by her second pregnancy, and that's when she was on the verge of suicide. So they never really bonded together. They always had it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So but anyway, he he sold me that day to a small businessman from Atkinson, New Hampshire. And um, I, I was that was on my 14th birthday, so I was still a little kid. Um, I don't know if you've seen pictures of me, but I'm not um, tremendously endowed anyway. But I was... I was a little kid, and I looked like a little kid. I wasn't very developed, and uh, he was so gleeful that I was still a child that it makes my stomach turn to this day. Um, it, it's And it's something that happens on a regular basis now that people um, are out there selling children to these buyers. And um, so that's why I do the work that I do. Well, I know it's just an incredible true and I don't want to say story because that that connotes that it's a a made up story this is just an incredible journey that you've you've come through and I'm just um I don't know I'm virtually speechless listening to all the details it's your resiliency also must be you know just uh, to the maximum for for you to have withstood all of this and to do what you're doing so I totally respect the fact that you're able to look back and to talk about this in a calm manner. I mean, how long did it take you with respect to uh, being able to maybe come out of this and to look back and, and to tell it, you know, retrospectively without um, all of the emotion that you must have felt? I mean, you're, you're saying this with such a, a sense of calm. Well, I was I was um, on the streets, living in my sneakers for four years. So I um, I had a number of different pimps I was passed around. I also was in foster care. I'd get and I was in foster care. Usually in foster care, I would go to a very nice home and spend a night or two and get rest and then just leave. I didn't stay in foster care very long. They weren't equipped for the kind of complex trauma that I had experienced, so they didn't know what to do with me, and they mm-hmm. thought just you know. And I think people don't know that now, too. They just they have a very lovely, nice, peaceful, calm home, and they bring in this kid with complex trauma, and they are so full of um, this cascade of chemicals that they can't sit still. They can't just 
be peaceful and watch a movie and have dinner and go to bed. Like that's not a thing. You know, right. we're living on the edge at that point, um, day and night, not knowing if we're going to live or die. Literally, you know, I was I was I suffered all kinds of deprivations. I was gang raped numerous times. Um, I was left on the side of the road numerous times. I was beat up really bad a few times. I mean, this this there's a a constant high high level of um, of um, adrenaline and you have to be hyper vigilant because you never know what's going to happen. And so foster homes were not equipped. So like I said, I was in and out of foster homes. Occasionally I was picked up by the police. Occasionally I was hospitalized. I was actually hospitalized with gonorrhea. That infection was so bad. I was on IV antibiotics. The the doctor that took care of me brought in residents to show them how bad an infection could be. And yet they just released me. There was no aftercare. There was no, no no programs during those days. I mean, we're talking 30 years ago. There were no programs for a trafficking victim. That was not a that was not a a thing that anybody knew anything about. So after, what did they um, release you to? Just let me go. They just let me out. Goodbye. So I, um, yeah. Uh, just, okay. Bye. <laughs> so and at at 17 and a half, I was sold to one man as what we call the house pet. So I was in personal sexual servitude, um, and that meant no more rapes, no more living on the streets, no more going days without food. Um, I, could, I could shower every day. I had a kitten. I actually had a kitten in my apartment. I had dishes. I didn't know how to use them, but I had them. And um, I, so I lived in an apartment. I got a little job at a pizza store, and I was just his. And, and I know that's not normal. I knew it wasn't normal then, but it was so much safer than anything that I had previously known. I started to calm down and get into a little bit of a routine. And as my body started to calm down and I started to um, settle, um, I was still paying the rent cash, which should have been red flag for the landlord, for this little girl to come out and give him cash. Um, I'm, I'm, I was maybe 105 pounds. You know, I, I still looked pretty small. <laughs> And mm-hmm. to come out and give him cash and have this man coming and going out of the apartment. The apartment was na- was um, rented in the name of a sheriff um, or a candidate for sheriff in that town. So it was very it was it was should have been wow. was recognized. Yeah, it should have been recognized. There are a lot of collusion. It sounds like you know, and they're just they they want the rent and that's it, and they don't care what the circumstances are. They don't care, are. right? So. Oh, um, I- but I, but I ended up getting pregnant, and this man had told me, if you get pregnant, you have to have an abortion. He told me about other, t- other women that he had forced to have an abortion, and um, one delivered in his business, in the bathroom in his business, and it was uh, four months old. And he says, well, that was a baby. When I got pregnant, he said, that's not even a baby yet. You don't even have a baby. But as I said, the words of my mom that we were in it together made me realize that from conception, she knew Mm -hmm. that I was a person. So to me, I I didn't want to have an abortion. I threw myself at his feet and I begged him, please don't make me do this. Please don't make me do this. And we had one of those old couches that were the velour with the, the, um, this woodland scene on it and then mm-hmm. the wooden wooden arms and he slammed his fist down on the arm and he said, I want no life and it shot through me like like a bomb had gone off and instantly I was on my feet standing up and I thought, Oh my God, I I have no no option here, I have no choice and I stood there shaking and he said, There's the phone and I, so I picked up the phone and I made the, uh, for the abortion in his presence with him, like literally on my shoulder. And I, I, he left and I somehow fell asleep that night. And as I, I, I just sobbed myself to sleep. And I, I had a dream of the abortion procedure in living color from the perspective of the womb. So I saw a little, little red face and little stubby fingers and a little piece of a rib cage and I woke up out of that dream absolutely horrified, terrified and shaking like I said from from head to toe. I didn't know what I was going to do. I threw my arms up in the air and I said, God, if you're real, I need you to show up. I need you to just just show up. Tell me what to do. I can't I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And I because he was connected with the police, he had taken me to detectives' homes before. As I said, the apartment was rented in the name of a candidate for sheriff. And he was connected with the underworld. 
he had run illegal gambling. He bought me from a pimp that had brought me to the illegal gambling establishments before. Like, I thought he was so well-connected. I didn't have any place to go. You didn't have any place, yeah. Yeah, I just thought he would find me. I I was not going to be able to get away. And that makes me think of now. When kids are going through that today, it's way more legit to think that way because of facial recognition software and technology and how easy it is to find people. In those days, I I could have gotten away. I didn't know that. I was brainwashed, but but I thought I couldn't get away. But now it's way harder. These girls have way more, or guys too, have way more fear than I ever had. I should say legitimized fear than I ever had. But anyway, that's a good point. Well, there must have been a, a turning point where you you felt like, oh, here's my window of opportunity and my uh, where you could physically escape. And ultimately, is that what did happen? Prayer. I remembered a social worker that had uh-huh. been my key tracker. She she had tracked me when I was a runaway, and she was a nice person. But like everyone else in my life, I thought she had an angle. You know, this was her job. So what? But she but I liked her. So I called, mm-hmm. and she didn't work there anymore. But the woman on the other end of the phone must have been able to hear my, my you know, my terror. And um, she called me back within about an hour. So I met with her. She found a home for unwed mothers for me, a maternity home down on the South Shore. And I had to meet him for dinner that night. Like I said, I couldn't run away. I thought I'd get found. So I mm-hmm. went out with him and faked an abortion. The day we were supposed to have the procedure done, I went out with um, the auntie, the social worker, and spent the day with her. I arranged for my stuff to be taken care of and put in storage, and then I met him that night for dinner. And when he came into the apartment, I was crying and upset, and I I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if he was going to check. I didn't know if he was going to know. Like, he could have had me followed. I have no idea what happened. And I was standing there, and he didn't really even take his coat off or anything. He didn't come all the way into the apartment. He said, you ready? And, of course, I grabbed my coat. I said, yes, still not knowing, getting into the car, whether or not I was ever going to get back to the apartment. I didn't know if I was going to, where he was going to take me to have an abortion or, you know, kill me. He said that he had a, a friend that was a doctor, and even if he couldn't get him to do it, he would do it himself. Like, this was a very, a very dangerous man. Um, he was a Shylark and had had a lot of a lot of very bad dealings that I knew about. I knew about people getting beat up. I had held the mortgage of a man that he had lost gambling debt to, and he he took his house. Like like that's how much power this guy had. He took this guy's house on a gambling debt. Like he was dangerous, and I knew it. But mm-hmm. I got in the car. And we drove down to Boston, and I made up this elaborate story about how my cousin was going to give me a job. I told him about how I felt the abortion procedure was. Like, because of the dream, I was able to really convey those emotions really strong. Uh, do you mean really, to the people at the abortion clinic you're telling this to? No, him, no, him on the way. I never went oh, to the him abortion on the clinic. Way. Okay. Yeah, I never okay. went. Um, nope. I, so I faked okay. an abortion with him. I, he, I convinced him that I had had an abortion. He didn't say really much of anything all the way down to the restaurant. I continued the, the um, I guess, facade in the restaurant. And on the way home, he said, I'm going to let you go, but if you come back to this city, you're mine. And I didn't know what to, to do. I, he believed me. I was like, do I thank him? Like, do I, I don't know what to do. I smile? Do I not smile? Oh. I, mean, I just, so I just sat there kind of frozen still the rest of the ride. And um, when we got back to that apartment, he let me out and he drove off. And I was, I was, I was astonished and, and amazed and still very much afraid that he was going to come after me if he found out. But, but I yeah. was Yeah. Can I, can I pause just for one second? Delilah, in all the stories that you've heard maybe talking to Betty or Dottie, uh, have you ever heard of someone who lets them go under these circumstances? No. I mean, that's just so highly unusual. Um, 
the only time I would say this might happen is if there was a, no more use. Uh, you know, it's as as Darlene can say, this you're a commodity. You um, you're a product, and if they can no longer make money from you, then you know there's a possibility they would let you go, or they would kill you, or sell you yeah. to someone else. Was this, just, was this his feeling that he just didn't, well, I'm moving on to the next person and you're of no no good use to me anymore? Or did yeah. he have that trust that you actually did have the abortion? He believed you, which is a miracle, well, right? Right. So he had had the experience before that when girls had had an abortion, they weren't as compliant and as, um, well, I guess compliance really the only word I can use um, that the, the relationship go, goes too sour. And so that was his experience previously. So he didn't want that experience. He wanted a completely compliant girl that he could do whatever he wanted with without any backlash and without any angst. So you were faking the part of being the the good girl, the compliant girl, I'll do what he says, and he, he bought into that. Yep. Wow, you must have been an, an incredible actress. <laughs> Well, <laughs> wow. it worked. So um, absolutely. So, so go ahead. I just had to interject that because this this seems very rare, and you know, in, in in the whole scheme of what happens to people. And so, go ahead. I'm enthralled. <laughs> well, um, so Anthony had uh, found a home for unwed mothers for me, and that they're they're still around today. They're in Quincy, Massachusetts. It's called Friends of the Unborn. At this time, it was just two rooms in her basement she opened up to a few throwaway girls like me. And um, we, we, we're down there, we're fighting all the time. We're, you know, all, we're all vomiting all the time and then fighting about who's going to clean up because we're all vomiting all the time. And it was not, it was not pleasant by any means, but she taught us how to settle down. She taught us how to get along. She taught us to talk with one another. This is what I was talking about, how much maternity homes teach um, the, the women that are there to um, to be able to get along in society and just with each other and stuff like that. But I, when you talked about having resilience before, um, about how I was so resilient, I had just focused all of my attention on the baby. So I, mm-hmm. I sort of set aside any healing and anything that 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 Personal my trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, I just wanted to be a good mom. I just poured everything into all of my energy into trying to be a good mom. I promised God that if the baby came out okay, I would, you know, do everything that I could to take care of. It was a girl, so her. Um, I said her or him. I didn't know, but um, but in but in doing that, um, I ended up moving back with my my grandmother again, a saving grace. She opened her home to me. After I had the baby, I was in with, I was in school within two weeks for my CNA, and then the next summer. Um, just a few months later, about seven months later, I was in school for my nursing um, certificate. And by focusing so much on getting enough education to get a good job to take care of my daughter, I was able to to channel all of the adrenaline and all of the hypervigilance and all that stuff and sort of be able to propel in a direction. I think that's for me, one of the biggest things about um, the trafficking, the anti-trafficking community is that housing needs to be available that is equipped to deal with that kind of um, need. There's a real need to channel and focus all of that hypervigilance and get it to a point where it's working productively for the person. Um, I, in my case, I had a baby, so I, was, I had that focus and something to draw me into a direction. But some women are coming out of trafficking situations, whether they've had an abortion or just, you know, the horrific trauma that they've suffered um, without even having an abortion, no pregnancy or anything. Um, they've a lot of times got health issues and other things that they, they need uh, to have dealt with. And so they need a, a place that's really equipped to deal with all of the issues they have. And there's only four of them in all of New Hampshire, I mean, excuse me, New England, four homes. Mm-hmm. And and How about as far as I know. What, what, do you, what do you say about that? Is it starting to um, 
are they starting to create more more of these centers where they can deal with multi-level trauma and to meet the needs? Think so. Um, that is not it's something I know much about. Um, mm-hmm. The if um, so, when I do research, I go on to the Polaris Project uh, website, right. and um, that that website has a map of of where services are available. But the homes that are homes for trafficking victims are somewhat secretive, and they mm-hmm. need to be to protect the trafficking victims, whether they're um, men or women or children, to protect them from the traffickers because that's their property. And depending on how how um, desperate they are and or how technologically adept they are, they could try to go get that victim back rather than yeah. another one. In Just my like case, in my domestic violence shelter or human uh, intimate partner violence shelter, yep. I mean, same thing. They have to be to be that. But is there, can you, can you give us some sense of how common is it for someone to have um, been through all of the trauma that you have in traffic? How common is it for for trafficked um, women to become pregnant once or even multiple times? Is it is it very common or is it atypical? It is very common. And um, uh, Laura Lederer did a, a survey of trafficking survivors and found that at least I don't have it in front of me. I didn't know that we were going to talk about this, so I would have pulled it up. But at least half had had one or more abortions, and um, another, I think it was 20%, had more than three abortions. So it's wow. it's actually quite common. Um, <clears throat> there, it it's a it depends on the the kind of the word I'm looking for. I don't want to say the word level because that's not an appropriate word, but the the type. So the type of sex trafficking it is. Mm-hmm. So if it's right. escort service, there's usually more safeguards put in place. They might use condoms, for example. But if it's street walkers, it's not necessarily the case. And if it's personal sexual service, it's not usually the case. So it depends on the type of sexual servitude we're talking about, whether or not okay. they're going to get pregnant and how often they're going to get pregnant and you know, whether or not they get care when right. they're pregnant, during their pregnancy or whatever. Yeah. So wow. it's pretty common. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, just to give you a little bit of a time check, we have about 16 minutes left to the left to our show, and the time is flying by incredibly. In fact, it is. At I hope point, I didn't take up too if much. If you want to come back, we'd be, we'd be more than happy. But could we address some of the um, – vulnerability uh, list that we had talked about because I think it's very valuable practical information for people to hear even if we kind of just do an overview with respect to sort of um, red flags kind of thing? Yeah. So um, the vulnerabilities are um, number one for, now I'm not talking human trafficking in general now, I'm just talking about sex trafficking. Sex trafficking victims have said at a rate of about 90% that they were child sex abuse victims. So child sexual abuse is a primary indicator um, that there's a potential for sex trafficking. That's a core, because it's a core violation, it, it makes that vulnerability very present. And so it's something that I hate to say we fall back on, but it's a way of being able to connect with people, that, in, that inner need that we have for love and and it's confused, obviously, and it's wrong, but it's it is one of the main factors. And then drug and alcohol abuse, um, abuse and neglect of other kinds, mental and physical abuse. That that need for intimacy, that need for feeling valued, um, leaves us with a big void that needs to be filled. And traffickers will spot that and exploit that to the to the max. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Poverty is not a significant. Um, indicator. Uh, there have been people who have been trafficked from very wealthy, very well-to-do homes. So that's not necessarily an indicator, but it is something that can contribute to it. For example, in my case, I I did have needs. I didn't have any boots. I didn't have winter gloves, that sort of thing. But And when you're talking about somebody who um, may become vulnerable, so it could be somebody 
who's aged out of the foster care system. They have nothing. So poverty in their case is going to be a factor, right? Mm-hmm. But it isn't always a factor. Obviously, there are people who have done very well out of out of a place of poverty. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's a, That's another potential indicator. Right. And so, and and. And so some, a lot of the things that I do when I, for example, I'm a speaker for Save the One, which is a global ministry of, of people that people consider exceptions in pro-life discourse. So those people who are considered um, expendable, they were conceived by rape or incest, or they have fetal anomaly. When I go speak for Save the One, for example, I'm, I always bring in these factors because there's, there's, um, there's a stigma attached you know, and, and I mean, people, even people with big names like Sean Hannity would say something like someone with, who was conceived in rape is a demon seed. Can you imagine being called a demon seed? There are about 35,000 people across the country in the United States alone who are conceived by rape or incest. 35,000, wow. Yeah, I yeah. can't conceive of somebody saying that. I mean, that your circumstances of birth are not under your control. Exactly, exactly. Right. right. And so then, then this, this stigma sometimes will carry over, though, and then, it, you know, that's where the drug and alcohol can come in, the anger issues can come in and all that kind of thing. And so that, that can be a setup, and it's a setup mm-hmm. that's going to be generational. Mm-hmm. So I always bring that up in those circumstances. So, so um, we, we were um, talking earlier about uh, what, what we're doing now to address human trafficking in New Hampshire and um, in, like in New England. And this week is, or this month is National Human Trafficking Awareness Month. But this next week, um, on Thursday, the 11th, is National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. Mm-hmm. And so um, there are actually three bills at our state house in New Hampshire that are coming up that address some aspect of human trafficking, which is kind of uh, ironic, I guess. Three of them, that's great. Right. So I'll be uh, speaking to those and um, addressing that before our legislature, excuse me, in the the criminal justice committee. Mm -hmm. And um, and then nationally, so you had said how many people um, are resilient that come out of trafficking. I think you mentioned something like that when you were talking earlier. And I'm part of the National Survivors Network, which is, now I don't know how many members they have that are not on Facebook. I only know there's about 168, 170 on the Facebook group that are pretty active. And those Mm -hmm. are people who have come out of trafficking, whether it's labor trafficking or sex trafficking, male and female. And there uh, there are um, a number of us that are very active in speaking out against this atrocity. So they've come through their healing and, and come out and and gone to be able to, as you say, thrive and help others through this and give hope that there's 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 an outcome that doesn't have to be negative. You don't have to, as you mentioned, curl up in a fetal position. But you can come out of it and, and be strong. You had asked me about how long it took me to come out of it. I was trafficked for four years, and then I brought up all my, my children I started advocating for um, the right to life fairly early. About I was about 26 or 27 years old. And so I advocated for the right to life now for over 25 years. But as far as trafficking goes, I waited till all my kids were all grown. So mm-hmm. when my baby was grown and graduated high school, then I started talking about my story and about trafficking. So it's only been about five years. Well, it sounds like you you had a few things on your plate, <laughs> and that you know we have different chapters of our life where this is the most appropriate focus, and then I'll do this, and then I'll do that, and right. um, but yeah, that that is uh, this this is just an amazing journey that 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 you have come through. Um, one thing that I thought that was particularly interesting too when we we had been talking about planning this show was that that maybe people are not 
as aware and those of us who have had a, a medical career, um, we talked about um, with regard to child sex abuse and 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 with trafficking, um, you had said that it's a core violation and inability of young young kids just like you to process what was going on and with regard to what goes on in the brain or in them there's no ability to use your the executive functioning teacher and to be able to plan for a future so I was thinking of that when you were describing foster care homes and you think oh you just have to go and sit down on the couch and watch a movie with the rest of us and it, you don't even know where the next day's meal is going to come from. So, can you talk a little bit about that with your with your medical training with regard to that? Because I don't think people realize how you're a minute to minute existence. Correct? Right, right. Really, it it is. So we when we're when we're really little, we think basically with our me brain, which is my term for our mid brain. And it's all about emotions and right now and how it feels and what's going on. And um, I, I actually just was um, reviewing a course that talks about the fact that when you're really young, you have tra- when you have trauma very, very young, you don't have a way to process it because it's not con- your, your brain hasn't connected to your um, your language center. And when mm-hmm. you're traumatized, you're traumatized in your midbrain and not in your language center. It doesn't connect. And so sometimes it's hard to have words for the trauma. You can't tell the story of what happened. You can't explain the feelings that went on. You can't, um, you can't process it at all because you can't put it into words. And so what happens a lot of times is that your body will process it. And so you have stomach aches or headaches or, you know, you, you, get, you get dizzy and you get sick or whatever because it's looping inside the very midbrain and it's not connecting to the the prefrontal cortex which for those people who don't know what the brain structure is like you have a you have a number of different parts of your brain it's not one unit it's all connected but it does different things and so the midbrain is a is where we process emotions where it creates the chemicals like dopamine oxytocin serotonin the happy chemicals you know that keep us going that make us feel comfortable with another person etc it also produces um, the cortisol and the pre-cortisol stimulators, and that makes us feel anxious and uncomfortable and, and stressed out. And so it's all contained way in the midbrain. And when you, when you start to grow, you start to make those connections. But if you've been traumatized as a small child, it tends to loop and retard the growth of those extensions out to the thinking brain or the prefrontal cortex those executive reasoning skills of consequences, impact on other people, the, the far-reaching things. Like we think of throwing a pebble in a pool. As adults, we can clearly see if you throw the pebble in the pool, it's going to ring out to all the edges. But as a mm-hmm. child, even if you try to explain that, they can't really process that because the, the balloop, the, the, pebble, the, the first pebble in, is, it's all they can actually process because they don't have the physical connections. Yeah, from the midbrain out. Wanted to throw in a very quick example. I uh, this is resonating now that you say this. A few years ago, when actually when I first started this show, maybe the first year, we had Connecticut sexual assault um, policy person coming on, and we talked about um, sexual assault with people with disabilities. And there is a a very famous case in Connecticut whereby a person who was severely disabled. Um, that could not communicate was being sexually assaulted by a caretaker. And long story short is that they, this girl kept reporting my stomach hurts, my stomach hurts. And I had written a blog about it as well. And they did all this testing, Darlene, and they couldn't find anything wrong with gastrointestinal and all of this and come to find out she was being sexually assaulted, but she did not have the language skills to know about the sexual organs and that she was being sexually abused, and they did not put it together. So the title of my blog was My, my Stomach Hurts and Other Misnomers. So that is a direct example of what you're talking about, no? Yeah, yes, absolutely. I'm so sorry to hear that, but, yeah, that, that happens. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, it's it, it it makes perfect sense. And the younger that you are, and these things happen to you, your brain is not. You know, you, nothing is connected fully until like in your late twenties in terms of your maturity too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it it, it, it is just um, incredible that. Um, the ones that are able to come out and create a sense of wholeness do. And I, I certainly hope that, you know, those people on the Facebook site that you know of, I mean, there's probably many others, but I think, you think there is a, there is power in all of the survivors coming together and, and trying to help. And I mean, not all of them, are doing what I do or doing what you do and want to come out and be a quote-unquote national advocate. It, do you think what is important for the person to do as an individual in order to create um, a sense of healing for yourself individually? So I always talk about within your sphere of influence. Be okay. the change within your sphere of influence. So whoever you're touching in your community, if that's, if that's you know, your stay-at-home mom, that's your children. If you are working as a clerk in a grocery store, that's your customers as you're going, you know, just being kind and, and, and being helpful to them is healing for you because you, you, that's what you needed. So give what you needed is, is my kind of life motto. I try to do the things that I needed. So I, um, I think that things like, um, visiting people and just being kind and generous within your small community or in your larger community, whatever it is, is really a very healing thing because we were, those of us who were abused were taking advantage of. And so what we want to do is, is not take advantage of other people within our sphere of influence. And that doesn't mean speaking nationally on national stages. And it might not mean having a radio show, but we can all do it. Every one of us can do it. Yes, yes, indeed. And um, well, like I said, we have about two minutes left. Would you like to give us um, uh, what what would be your resounding message for this for this hour? And any contact information, if you're willing, if if people want to connect with you. And again, I throw out the invitation. If if you would like to, you you are invited back in the future, anytime, darling. Because I think you have a lot to offer. Well, thank you. Um, I think that my my resounding message, the thing that I'd like to leave people with is bad beginnings don't necessitate bad endings. And that goes for the children conceived in rape. It goes for the kids who are being abused. Even even the 23-year-old who's you know doing a good job and, and doing everything um, from a very normal, natural family can be assaulted. And that can seem like a bad beginning of a, a, you know, of a new phase in life, for example. You know, going to college, maybe they get assaulted. That bad beginning doesn't necessitate bad endings. We can get through it. Find help. Find the person that you need um, to help you through. Don't trust everybody with your issue because not, not everybody's going to be helpful. <laughs> but ease into Good relationships. Point. Yeah, yeah. It can be really bad. But ease into relationships with people and find someone who can help you to to really process the things that have gone on so that you can get to a good ending. And a good ending for you is not going to be the same as for me, but everybody can have um, a, a good a good process in their lives. And, and I shouldn't say good ending because as our lives go on, we have ups, downs, ins, out, sideways, you know, everything goes all over the place. But just because you were hurt doesn't mean your life is over and it doesn't mean your life is tragic. My mom at 15 years old was violently raped. She had two kids before she was 17. She had multiple divorces, but now she's been married for almost 13 years to a very wonderful man. She really enjoys her life. She's got a good job. So anybody from any what seemingly bad beginning can have a really great life. Wow. Well, I think on that high note, that that's that is that's that's very hopeful, and I feel very blessed to have come to know you and I hope that we will continue our collaboration in the future and we're Facebook friends now too Um, Lila would you like to have some parting words uh, as we always do at the end of our show 
Yeah, I, I really want to thank Darlene for being on today. Yeah. And um, I, I would like for you to take these last minutes and give out your website and your contact yeah. information. There may be someone out there who would like to hire you to speak. Um, I don't yeah. And maybe explain a little bit about what type of venues that um, that you speak for. Okay. I'm at thedarlingprincess.com. So it's not Darlene. It's darling, like a dear one, D-A-R-L-I-N-G, princess.com. And I speak to all kinds of venues. So I'm going to speak at the State House next week. You know, I do do, uh, radio and podcasts and things. I also do keynotes for uh, fundraisers. I've done rallies. I've done small groups. I actually go to the uh, detention center here in New Hampshire and speak to the girls. Um, do a little Bible study. So, like, I do all kinds of speaking. I've spoken to women's groups. I've done church um, Sunday services, all kinds of things. And I'm at thedarlingprincess.com. Wonderful. Well, um, I'm sure that if anybody wants to get in touch and they get in touch with me, I will connect you as well because I, I really do think that your message is very powerful and we need to help help you get it out. And you need to get paid for it, too, <laughs> as we all do. But sometimes it doesn't work that way. But in any case, it's about, it's about paying it forward, and it's not ultimately about money. So with, with that, uh, thank you so much again. Um, keep you. in touch. And um, thank you, Delilah. We're going to close out this show for now. And please do circulate the show so it benefits everyone. We will see you next week with a wonderful edition of Shattered Life Radio. Take care, everyone, and stay warm. Thank you. Thank you.